Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. There are some things in life that we think shouldn't go together, but then we put them together and there's a wonderful harmony. One of the ones that comes to mind, I created a list. Maybe you'll resonate with some of these. How about laughter and crying? You don't think those two would go together, but when they do, when you get somebody laughing so hard that they start crying, it's a memory that you'll have for a lifetime. It's only happened a couple times with me, but I can remember it pretty clearly. And so it's a, a funny unity. What about breakfast for dinner? Any of you out there? All right, one? Okay, I thought there'd be two. Thank you. All right. Breakfast for dinner at Lancaster Bible College. I remember during exam week, we did a midnight breakfast. And it was one of the most fun experiences of the year as we all were cramming, and then we were fed and then crammed some more for exams. And so midnight breakfast, you don't think we go together, but it was awesome. I don't want to forget the sweets people out there. What about desserts for breakfast or insert whatever time? Desserts at whatever time. Those things go together really well. My Pennsylvania Dutch heritage, I grew up in Berks County, red beets and eggs, yeah? If it's homemade, it's a great, delicious treat. You wouldn't think those things would go together, but they do. I'm a witness. And then there was one that recently happened for me just a couple weeks ago. Middle school boys and clean rooms. Okay? That picture is our room in Harvey Cedars after we've been living in it. Our middle school boys here at GP Students, I've never been able to say this in all my years of ministry experience, won the cleanest rim award in all of the conference. And so it was a special thing. It wasn't me. So. And I was sharing this with one of my friends from Wisconsin, because it just seems too good to be true. And he said, you better keep that in mind. When somebody asks you for a modern day miracle, you can just show them that picture. So, okay, sounds good. So you usually don't think middle school and clean rooms go together, but they did for us this week, and I thank the Lord for it. Then there are some more serious ones, like the last two I'm going to cover, evangelism and suffering. You wouldn't think that those two things would go together, but when you are going through trials, your opportunity to evangelize becomes so great. And so when you can say, God is good, even when... All this stuff is chaos, difficult. People are going to listen and say, what's that hope that you have? And you have a unique opportunity to evangelize. We're going to discuss one more set, which is two attributes of God that many people find inconsistent. But we're going to discover that they're actually in perfect harmony with one another. Today we're going to be diving into biblical theology, that is the study of the God of the Bible. And we're going to continue in Romans, in chapter 11, and Paul is going to continue his teaching on the role that Israel has, as well as the role that Gentiles have. 
And we're going to see how they play in God's grand narrative. But in the middle of this teaching, Paul is just going to stop, and he's going to make note of a very important biblical theological lesson for us. So we're going to discover by the end of our time together this morning that theology matters. If we misunderstand these two attributes of God, our view of God can take us to a place far from the one true God of the Bible. And if we misunderstand who God is, the foundation of our faith comes crumbling down. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says this. We looked at it a couple months ago. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that God has not revealed about himself, and scripture teaches those things belong to the Lord. Our finite minds could never comprehend them. But he has revealed to us in the scriptures the things that you and I are to know. And so we're responsible to have a biblical theology of God, a biblical view of God. And I've been pastoring, shepherding now for the last nine years, and I've seen the destruction that happens when people embrace their own view of God as superior to the Bible's view of God. So let's let God define himself this morning, and we're going to take a look at two of his attributes, which are in absolute harmony. So turn with me. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17. And we're going to continue our study called Immersed in Grace. I'm going to just pause and make a statement before we look at our text that it's a real gift that we have been able to go through the book of Romans together. I love and appreciate that Grace Point stands on the word of God. The last couple chapters, it would have been easy just to hit the fast forward button. Let's not talk about that. Let's just move on to things that are going to make us feel good. But here we believe in the full counsel of God's word, and so we're going to teach all the chapters of Romans, even when it might be difficult for us to hear them. And I really appreciate that. It's not a lot of churches, or not many churches will, will go through a whole book together. And so let's count it a privilege that we can continue our study in Romans 11, looking at verses 17 through 14. And so start, or 24, 17 through 24. Look at verse 17 with me. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. What is going on here? So we're continuing the study, and Paul has already told us that God has put a temporary blinding on some of the Jewish people, where they cannot trust in Christ. They have unbelief in Jesus. And so Paul's going to continue. Now he's going to use this illustration of an olive tree. And there's a word in that text called graft, and it appears six times in our passage. Anytime you see a key word appear multiple times in a small section of scripture, it's important that you look into it and try to figure out what does that word mean. And you don't want to just consider what does it mean to us, what does grafting mean to us. We have to think what did grafting mean 2,000 years ago to the Romans who this book was written to. And so since I am not skilled with olive tree work, I decided I need to do some research so I could help you and myself understand. So we're going to go to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary to help us understand what is grafting, how was it done at the time. I have two quotes that we're going to work through here. This is the first one. 
Olives were frequently caused to multiply by removing shoots from the base of a cultivated tree and grafting them onto the trunks of wild olive trees. All right, so the farmer's been working on the olive tree, and it's a cultivated one. It's producing really well. At the base of the tree, the trunk, there would be these wild olive shoots. You would take it off, and you'd go put it on the stump of a tree that's not cultivated. Why would you do that? The hopes is that that tree now is going to produce good fruit like this one. Make sense? So you're trying to multiply your efforts here to yield more and more olives. That's how this process would work. It's a difficult process, but farmers would do this to enhance their crop. But there's something different about our text. God's doing kind of the opposite here. Look at this next quote. Paul's illustration in our text this morning portrays the incomprehensible grace of God who does what no farmer would do break off cultivated limbs, representing descendants of Israel, to graft in wild limbs, representing Gentile believers. The illustration also serves as a warning to believing Gentiles not to be proud and despise the contribution of Israelites who made their faith possible, but to stand firm in faith. So the normal practice would take from the good tree and put it in a bad tree in hopes that the bad tree will be cultivated. But what does God do? He takes from the bad tree and brings it into his own tree. Do you see the difference there? It's the kindness of God. We're not part of the tree, and yet God's gonna take us and put us into his tree. So we see God's kindness on display here. Farmers wouldn't dare to do this. It could damage their crop, but God and his wisdom, his perfect plan is bringing us into his family when we are over here, our own olive shoots. The text, if you look back at verse 17, says some of the branches were broken off. That's a reference to unbelieving Israel. So there are Israelites who have unbelief in Jesus. They've been broken off from the tree. Last week we looked that God has put a temporary blinding on them in order that the Gentiles might be brought in. The root of the olive tree is the Jewish people generations ago who have faithfully carried the word of God to us today. God used these Jewish faithful to bring about his blessing and his truth. But right now, some of them have been temporarily blinded to belief in Christ. These branches breaking off has provided an opportunity for us Gentiles to be brought in. That's what we are, wild olive shoots is what the text is saying here. And that's Gentiles, or as I look around, probably a large percentage of us can't trace our history back to Israel. And so if if you can't do that, you are considered a Gentile. Therefore, this breaking of the branches has brought you and I an opportunity to hear the word of God and to be brought into God's tree. So let's pause here. Our culture today, when we look around, is all about us, all about me. Embrace yourself, follow your heart, you can do it. It's all about me. You just have to have the willpower But if we understand what Paul just said in verse 17, we should quickly be humbled. Look at verse 18 for the answer here. Why should we be humbled? Verse 18 says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. The branches that are on the tree are the branches that have been broken. Arrogant means to boast about something by downgrading something else. We should never put down 
or boast against unfaithful Israel in an attempt to brag. Look, we're part of the tree and you're not. That should never be coming from our mouths, according to God's word here. As we've heard from past weeks, our salvation has been presented as a gift to us, and we receive the gift. If it's a gift, it means we don't deserve it, we didn't earn it, so we should receive it with absolute gratitude. If salvation is a gift from God, there's no room to boast about receiving a gift. If salvation were a paycheck, something that you and I earned, then we could say, look at us, we received our salvation, we earned this, but it's a gift, so your only boast is in who? It's in Christ, right? That is the only boast that you and I have. The text then says, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. The modern day translation is, it's not about you, it's not about Jeremy, it's about God and his infinitely wise plan. You and I receive our nourishment from God's word, God's truth that was carried to us through faithful generations of Israel and faithful believers in Christ since. So we should have our eyes, our hearts on God's word, that our roots should be planted in the soil of God's word. If you and I went to the local bookstore, we'd see a large section of self-help books. It's one of the largest sections probably in a bookstore. But if you want spiritual nourishment, don't go to the self-help part of the bookstore. Go right to God's word. That is where you're gonna get the nourishment that you need for spiritual growth. Look at the next passage, verse 19 and 20. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. This passage is a difficult one to process through. Is what it's teaching is, God has broken off branches on the tree and they've been discarded for the short duration of time. It can be really hard to process through, but that's what the text is teaching. There are gonna be times where there's tension in the Bible that we just cannot fully grasp or understand. And I loved how Pastor Dave said, there's beauty in the tension. We see that in everyday life. And so we need to trust in these moments where we might not see God's full picture, that he's still a good, perfect God who's got a perfect plan, and he's working all things together for his good. And if it's for his good, it's also our good as well. And so when we get to these tough passages, we've got to just trust that God, we know his faithfulness throughout the whole scripture. We trust that he is the good, perfect God. But this is teaching us that branches were broken in for the purpose that we might be grafted in. And so we rest in this tension knowing God's good and his plan's perfect. He's caused these branches to be broken off temporarily in order for us to be brought in to the family of God. And so if you are a Gentile, this is really good news for you. It's hard news, but it's good news because there's been a way made for you and I to come to faith in Christ. It's a temporary breaking. We're gonna see that in a little bit. It's a temporary closing of the eyes because they do not believe they've been broken off. You and I hold fast in faith. The result of this, you should not become proud. Instead, you and I should fear. Don't become proud, but fear. What is fear? Fear is not just cowering in the corner, never engaging with God out of he's gonna smite you. 
That's not the fear that's being discussed here. Fear is a reverence. It's an awe. It's recognizing he's the creator of our lives, of everything, and it's giving him the respect that he most certainly deserves. Think about how often our culture whimsically throws God's name around. They use God's name in vain. They don't fear him. They don't revere him. So let's make sure that you and I are holding God in reverence and all which he most certainly deserves. Let's unpack the text more, looking at verses 21 and 22. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So if God did not spare Israel when they were practicing unbelief, neither will he spare Gentiles if they're practicing unbelief. The question there is, does this mean that you and I could lose our salvation? Probably a question that's on our minds frequently. That's not what the Bible teaches, and it's not what's being taught here. If you put faith in Christ and it was genuine, you're sealed, your salvation's sealed. And I appreciate what John MacArthur says as he answers a question on this. He says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If there was a chance that we could lose our salvation, you would. How does he make statements like that? He's quoting from John 10, or he's processing through John 10, verse 28, 29, which teaches that your salvation, if you put faith and trust in Christ, is in the palm of God's hand. Who can snatch anything out of God's palm? You guys are right. Nobody can, right? God secures our salvation in the palm of his hand. Isn't it praise God it's not like in Jeremy's palm or in your own palm? Wouldn't that be like, oh man, there's no hope. It's in God's palm. Nobody can take anything from God. And so we rejoice in that. If, if you could lose your salvation, you would, but you can't because God holds it in the palm of his hand. So what is God's word instructing if it's not that? What he's saying is, if Gentiles continue in unbelief, they will not be spared. That is a tough thing to process through, and it should cause us to want to evangelize and share Christ with everybody we can. And it's right at that moment when Paul delivers that hard reality that he stops. Do you see the word he says? He says, note. And this is where he takes us to biblical theology 101. We could translate that word note as, therefore, pay attention to, listen up, make a note, underline it, highlight it. Note it. Do you see the kindness and the severity of God? Severity towards those who practice unbelief, kindness towards you who believe and abide. Here's the truth, theological truth. God is a kind, gracious, holy, severe God, and what I just said does not conflict. Say it again. God is a kind, gracious, holy, severe God, and it doesn't conflict at all. His attributes are in perfect harmony together. He's so kind, extending grace to us, undeserving people. We don't deserve his grace, and yet he lavishes on us. Providing the way of escape through Christ, redeeming an unworthy people. But at the same time, he is equally severe. His wrath will be poured out on all who don't believe. Hell is a real place reserved for those who've rejected Christ 
And sin is a holy offense, is an offense against a holy God. And so God is severe and kind. Why does this theology matter? Why not just skip this? It matters for this reason. There are some who label themselves as pastors who preach a false gospel saying that love wins. And what they're doing is elevating one attribute and just disregarding the other attributes of God. God's love will outweigh his other attributes, resulting in salvation for everybody. And when you process through what they're saying, they're claiming universalism. What happens with that belief? They make claims that a loving God can never send anyone to hell. They provide false hope, ensuring that others, even though they hate God, will spend eternity with him. The result is, why evangelize? If everybody's going to heaven, what's the point of sharing Jesus with anybody? Why does God call us to make disciples then? It also results in people embracing their sin rather than the Savior. This kind of teaching will have people embrace their sin rather than the Savior. It's a heresy. It's a false teaching. God is loving. We see that so clearly in the scripture, but he's also holy, holy, holy. He's so holy that Christ was needed to substitute in our place, giving us his righteousness. So when we present the gospel to others, we need to share the whole gospel. We need to share that they have fallen short of the glory of God, just like Jeremy has. We need to share that we personally, Jeremy personally transgressed God's law. I've sinned against a holy God. They need to see the seriousness of their sin, that one offense, the wages of sin is death. If sin wasn't so serious, why was Jesus slaughtered? Then there are some who label themselves as pastors who preach a false gospel, saying that you must be perfect in order to receive salvation. They practice legalism, and they hold their people to impossible expectations. They speak often of rule following and little of grace and mercy. The result there is people thinking that they have a need to work for their salvation. They never understand that it's actually a gift that's been given to them. I've counseled people who've sat under this kind of teaching, and the result is catastrophic. They can never find the rest Jesus promised to all who are weary and heavy laden. See, theology, it matters. Going down either path, elevating one attribute over another or disregarding another will take you to a really dark place, distant from the one true God. We need to understand the unity that exists between God's judgment and his kindness. And that's our main point. Theology matters. God is perfect in his judgment and his kindness. Theology matters. God is perfect in his judgment and his kindness. So I'm making a big theological claim here. And I, whenever somebody makes a theological claim, you got to be like a Berean and say, show me in the scriptures where this is true. And so if we believe that the God of the Bible, the God that we believe in, is the same God in the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, we should do a case study in both. And so we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to take you guys to the Old Testament, a book that probably most of us are familiar with, Jonah. And so we're going to put this claim to the test. Do we see God perfect in his judgment and kindness to the two main subjects in Jonah? 
You guys can guess the first main subject, Jonah. And then the second one is the city of Nineveh. And so let's see if God is perfect in his judgment and his kindness towards Jonah. All right, so what happens in the book of Jonah? Jonah's given the call to go to Nineveh and preach repentance there. Tell the people to repent and turn to the one true God. And so Jonah, what's he gonna do? Nineveh's this way and I'm out. Oh, there's water? Okay, I'm gonna get in a boat. It's farther away from Nineveh and I'm out, okay? Disobeying God is gonna result in judgment. What's the judgment that happens? Storm rages, lots cast, Jonah's thrown into the sea because it's discovered that it's his fault the storm has come. And so judgment being cast into the sea. There's also judgment of a big fish that comes up, swallows him. But at that moment, we also see the kindness of God. Because if Jonah was left in the water, what would have happened? He probably would be dead. And so God sends judgment and kindness at the exact moment with a fish swallowing him. I see it as judgment because that could not have been a pleasant process. But it's also kindness because his life is preserved in the belly of a fish. God continues his kindness, right? We see what appears to be repentance from Jonah, and the fish spits him up on dry ground. Again, God's kindness to deliver him. And then he goes, has the same commission to go and share with Nineveh, which this time he does. So we see God's judgment being cast overboard, fish swallowed, but we also see God's kindness, fish being delivered on dry ground both in harmony in Jonah's story. What about Nineveh? Nineveh was evil. There's no other word to put it. They hated God. They hated the Jewish people. So when Jonah takes off going the other way, kind of makes sense why he reacted that way. It was wrong. But they hated his people. You want me to go over and you're going to be kind to them? Do you know what they did to us? Do you know what they've done to others? And so... Judgment was going to be coming for Nineveh soon. And they deserved it for the evil that they've done. And so we see God's judgment on display. Wickedness receives judgment. But then you see the kindness of God. He sends a messenger to go to Nineveh and proclaim repentance. And the people repent and are saved. And so you see the judgment of God was going to be coming, but then God relents the judgment and gives them salvation now, if you know Nineveh's history after, after that generation or some time passed, they went back into their sin. But during that moment, there was salvation in Nineveh, a city, that is a city that you and I probably would say, there is no way that those people could come to faith. Don't ever say that, because God can do way more than you could ever think. He could save Nineveh. He can do way more than what you think. Don't ever say somebody's outside the reach of God. Um, he's capable of saving any, whoever he pleases. So the Old Testament, that's just one story. But if we went through case study after case study, you'd see God's judgment and kindness and harmony. Let's go to the New Testament, where I think it's on full display. And I'm thinking, what's the best place to look? It's actually right here, where we see God's judgment and his kindness on full display. Let's do a case study on the cross. How do we see his judgment? The cross displays the seriousness of sin. The necessity of the cross shows that we were separated from God and we were deserving his wrath. The wrath of God's poured out on the Son, that displays God's serious about it. 
his holiness on full display as Jesus takes our place. If God was lax about sin, there would be no need for the crucifixion. Couldn't he just overlook our sin? I didn't see it. Or I'll just kind of, if he was lax about it. No, because God is holy and he's perfect in his judgment. So a sacrifice needed to occur. We could never atone for our sins because we're not perfect. So the spotless one goes to the cross for us. God's serious about sin, so serious about sin that Jesus was crucified. But God's also perfect in his kindness at the cross. We look there and see it on full display. Instead of pouring his wrath on Jeremy, or insert your name, Jesus willingly takes our place on the cross. He pays our debts, giving us cleanliness from our trespasses. Scripture says we're white as snow. He then cloaks us with his righteousness, which we don't deserve. It's a wonderful act of love and kindness. And scripture says, greater love has no one than this, someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' act of leaving his heavenly throne to die for us when we were enemies of God, that's what scripture says, is the greatest act of love to ever occur. His kindness is perfect. At the cross, we see a perfect demonstration of God's judgment and kindness, and they are in harmony. It's all over the Bible if we just open our eyes to see it. The passage continues in verse 23, and it says, and even they, speaking of the broken branches, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. The branches are unbelieving Israel, and if they were cut off, they can be added directly back if they cease in their unbelief. God most certainly has the power to graft them right back in. Notice who has the power? God does, not Jeremy. God's the one in the industry of saving souls. He's able to accomplish whatever he pleases. You might have thought God was really severe with Israel, uh, as the text is alluding to that. But right after that passage, it says God can bring them right back in. And so we see the kindness of God again, severity and kindness united here. And verse 24 develops this more. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own tree? If we were grafted into a tree we don't belong, it's quite easy for God to take the broken branches and bring them right back in. And we need to pray for that. We need to pray that God would continue to save the souls of these Jewish people that are blinded to belief. I had the privilege 11 years ago of going to Israel, to Jerusalem, and I went to this place called the Western Wall. And as you can see in the picture, these are bricks from the temple. This is the closest spot that the Jewish people can get to where the Holy of Holies was. They're not allowed on the Temple Mount right now, so the most sacred spot for them is the western walls. It's closest to the Holy of Holies. And as you go up, you see the, the bricks, the stone. And as you get closer, you see the white all throughout the, where the stone is kind of chiseled away over time. And you look, and you're like, what are those? And they're stuffed with paper. They're the prayers of the people. And so perhaps they're praying for their family. I'm sure they're prayers for specific needs. But the biggest prayer request that's uttered there at the Western Wall is that the temple will be rebuilt. 
And there's lots of tears that happen for the Jewish people here because they long for the temple to be rebuilt. I also cried, but for a different reason. I cried because there are Jewish people that missed the Messiah. He was promised all throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures that they acknowledge as the word of God, and they miss Jesus. And I'm just witnessing all these people lamenting at the fact that the temple hasn't been built when Jesus has already come and paid their debt. I can still remember just weeping there. We need to pray that God's going to restore these Jewish people back to faith in Christ, that these broken branches will be cultivated right back in to their olive tree. We need to also pray that God's going to continue to take wild olive shoots, right? Gentiles, people that you and I love, that need Jesus, and bring them into the tree as well. I remember standing there so clearly, just longing for these people to see the need that they have for Christ. Their Savior already came. They missed him. And so would God open the eyes of the blind, just like he did for us, would he open their eyes to belief in Christ? So what are our takeaways as we wrap up? You just completed the first class of Jeremy's Biblical Theology 101. So congratulations to you. It's exciting. We learn the severity and the kindness of God. It's time to do a self-analysis of our understanding of who God is. So now we just learned two attributes. God has so many more attributes or characteristics. So let's do a self-analysis. A.W. Pink says the following. Each of us needs to be most prayerfully on his guard against devising an image of God in our thoughts, which is patterned after our own evil inclinations. We need to be careful not to envision God as we think he should be, but as the Bible describes him to be. Is your greatest desire to know the one true God as he's revealed himself in the Bible? Don't fall into the temptation of removing an attribute of God that might make you uncomfortable. His judgment, wrath, severity is in absolute harmony with his grace, goodness, and kindness. It's an awesome God we serve. So when you think of who God is, if somebody came up to you and said, Jeremy, who do you say God is? Is your answer derived from scripture? Could you look and say, hey, you see the the grace of God right here. He saved somebody like me. There's the goodness of God, but there's also the holiness of God. Or is what you answer derived from your own personal thoughts about who you think God should be? Let's make sure we're dedicated to the God of the Bible. And maybe you're having a difficult time seeing the harmony between the attributes of God. How could he be this and this? A.W. Pink, who the quote's from, writes a really great book called The Attributes of God. It's a short book. You're wrestling with the holiness of God. You can open up. It's all scripture, and it'll help you have a greater understanding of his holiness. And so I highly recommend A.W. Pink's Attributes of God. My second and last takeaway for us, there is a world that desperately needs to hear the true gospel, the true gospel. So let's share it. People need to hear that their sins have separated from God, They need to hear that their sins are great, but they need to hear that their Savior is far greater, and he has paid their debt and has overcome. We need to praise God that he's made a way for us to receive this salvation in Christ. There is a day coming, and it's closer today than it was yesterday, for those who don't know Christ, where God's wrath will be poured out. We need to pray earnestly that God will save their souls 
and that we will share the true gospel with them. Somebody probably comes to mind that you long for to receive salvation. Pray earnestly and then go and tell them about the good news. Who can you share Jesus with this week? And would you go and do it? This last quote I want to end with says this, nothing smoother than the sea, yet when stirred into a tempest, nothing rageth more. Nothing so sweet as the patience and goodness of God, and nothing so terrible as his wrath when it takes fire. Brothers and sisters, we know the gospel. Let's go make the gospel known. Theology matters. God is perfect in his judgment and his kindness. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we are so thankful for the work that you did in taking us olive shoots, us wild olive shoots, and grafting us into your tree. What a gift that you've given to us. We don't deserve. You've presented salvation to us, and we are just so grateful. Even when we were your enemies, you loved us so much. We think of these broken branches. Our hearts are grieved for Israel that doesn't believe. Would you open their eyes? Open the eyes of the blind like you did for us. Would you graft them back into their own olive tree? And Lord, we know that there are many who don't know you that we love and care about. Would you use us to be carriers for the gospel? Would you save their souls? We know you're in the industry of doing that. And so would you accomplish that for those that we love and care about? Be with our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. Use them to advance the gospel as well. Thank you that you're adding daily to the number of those being saved. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.